Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week brings me to the 2006 publication of what was billed as King's Return to Form, the horror fest that takes on a common everyday object and turns it quite literally into the end of the world, a novel that turns a ubiquitous device into our own downfall and functions as his own unique take on the popular zombie genre, the nail-biting thriller Cell. Here's a little background for Cell. When King finished writing The Dark Tower, he famously stated that he was retired. He was done. And as you know from my review of The Dark Tower Book 7, The Dark Tower, the reading experience reads like a funereal experience. There's a sense of mourning draped over that novel, and I can understand why King felt a profound sense of closure upon the conclusion of writing The Dark Tower. However, writers don't retire. So it was no surprise that 2006 saw King release a throwback novel, one that sees him taking a familiar object and spinning a horrific end-of-the-world story around it. Just like he had done with The Automobile with Christine, The Victim of Bullying with Carrie, A Hotel with The Shining, A Loyal Dog with Cujo, and The Death of a Family Pet with Pet Cemetery, he takes something familiar and places his own stylistic spin on it. And in this case, the subject of the horror is a cell phone, a brilliant concept. By 2006, cell phones were everywhere. At that point, they were around long enough to not be considered a fad. They had ingrained themselves into everyday life. So upon publication, cell was very relevant and a fun examination on our life with cell phones. Now, however, with all of that said, in 2015, Cell phones are not the technology that we carry with us. Instead, we use smartphones. So the idea that a pulse would be sent out through the phone to attack everyone um, that is having a phone conversation is sadly dated where it wasn't in 2006. If you were to walk down the street today, you wouldn't see people talking on the phone. You'd see them looking down on their screen. And it would stand to reason that if someone were to use smartphones as a source of attack, they wouldn't use cell phones, but whatever content they were looking at using the smartphones, like well, there's a comic book right now um, called Mimetic? Mimetic. I would say Mimetic uh, by James Tinian, in which a popular, popular internet meme is used to bring down civilization. So... Um, I mean, think of Grumpy Cat, right? So, I mean, every Grumpy Cat meme that you see or the uh, or, or the Captain Picard, you know, one where he's, like, clearly angry and he's stretching out his hand. And, you know, so, I mean, just think of the, all of the popular memes, right, that, that just circulate everywhere. This particular comic book by James Tinian, it's about the, um, what's the name, uh, like the Happy Sloth or the, the Happy Go Lucky Sloth or the Good Time Sloth, I think is what it's called. Just a sloth with his thumb up in the air and it gets around and it gets spread but it turns out that there is some sort of virus um or a pulse that that is attached to this sloth and when you see it I, I don't know what it is i think that it might be 24 hours it drives you insane it functions very very similar to cell and in 2015 it's a bit more relevant um than than cell is at this point um but that doesn't mean that it was not a powerful concept for its time, which it was, and it still has worth as a commentary on our culture, even though the specifics might have changed. But here's the deal with Cell. Cell, released in 2006, came out hot on the heels of the holy trinity of zombie movies from the early 2000s. The three films being Zack Snyder's The Dawn of the Dead, 28 Days Later, and Shaun of the Dead. Now, not only are these three movies three of the greatest zombie movies of all time, they're probably my three personal favorite zombie movies of all time. Um, and these are the only three examples of the early 2000s. I mean, let, let's not forget about George Romero's Land of the Dead, which, you know, while not very good, is still a notable movie due to it being the father of the zombie genre returning to his own franchise. And very quietly, in the background, while Zack Snyder, Edgar Wright, and Danny Boyle were paying tribute or reinventing the genre on the big screen, the true zombie renaissance as we know it was slowly gaining steam one month at a time in the pages of a little comic that could. 
That comic, of course, eventually exploded into being the most watched television show of the modern age, Robert Kirkman's The Walking Dead. So, Cell feels as though King isn't breaking new ground, as he had done so many times before in the past. Instead, what he's doing here, he's providing an entry into um, a fad that happened to be very, very hot at the time. And it feels less of a Stephen King novel and more at times like a Stephen King imitator. Now, however, even with that said, King does what he can to make it his own. The zombies in this novel aren't your garden variety undead. The stuff that King has them doing are just weird. And as we'll get to it, they have shared telepathy. They project music from their mouths. And when one flock dies, the other can sense it. I'd say that the way he portrays these zombies is the weirdest thing since Tommyknockers. And this off-the-wall insanity always makes for a good read. So all in all, as I'll get to, uh, Cell is a bit of a mixed bag. I mean, it, it, the, the, all of the ingredients in this particular stew, some of the ingredients are fresh, some of the ingredients are a little bit stale, but overall it, it, makes, for, um, you know, it, it makes for a nice meal. So before I get any further, uh, I want to read a listener email, and this is from Bryant. Well, I've caught up on the podcast now, which is great because it means I can listen to new episodes, but a bummer because it means I'm currently out of episodes to listen to. Them's the perils of discovering a new podcast, though, I guess. A few thoughts. That trip to Derry, or Bangor, sounds amazing. I might have to do that on vacation one of these days. And what Bryant is talking about is um, a vacation I took to uh, Bangor, Maine, in order to experience sk-tours.com and if you decide to do that then Stu your tour guide will take you throughout Bangor and show you all of the places that have inspired aspects of Stephen King's works so if you are a fan of Stephen King I would say it's well worth your time if you are a fan of Stephen King movies uh, you're not going to get as much out of it if you are a fan of Stephen King books and I I I personally would would recommend uh, uh, folding in a, a trip um, to, to to Bar Harbor as well. And it's all completely up to you, but unless you live in the Northeast, I would make sure that you, you get a little, you get a little um, other aspect of Maine besides Bangor. Because personally, I would just say that there wasn't a great deal to do in Bangor outside of, you know, Gansan to eat and going on the, the, the tour. So if you live farther away, I would make sure that, that you, you book it um, with uh, with a secondary aspect of, of the trip as well. But you there is a bonus episode uh, that you can find in, in my feed. Uh, it was, I, I believe I published it towards the end of April of 2015. So head on over there if you haven't listened to it for my review of sktours.com, which is well, well worth your time. So Brian continues, by pure coincidence, I had just finished reading the newest issue of the Dark Tower comic uh, when I listened to the drawing of the three episode. The issue included the shootout at Balazar's, which one of the great scenes in all of King's canon. It didn't entirely survive the translation into the comic's format. No surprise, given that the comics overall have been, in my opinion, a little iffy. Number three, I thought that your episode on the Tommyknockers was great. I revisited that novel a few years ago, and I too found it to be much stronger than I remembered. Not perfect, it's a sloppy mess in some regards. However, I think that the high points are so good that they make they more than make up for the problems. Number four, you and I are in 100% simpatico in regards to the Avengers-style ending you hoped for from the final Dark Tower books. I was convinced that that's how it would end, and the fact that it didn't bums me out so much that I've been toying with the idea of writing my own sequel. In this tome, Alan Pangborn would absolutely become a gunslinger, as would Mike Anderson from Storm of the Century. I'd rope in Carrie White, Danny Torrance, Ben Mears, Mark Petrie, Johnny Smith, Charlie McGee, and, in a surprise reunion, her dad, um, John Coffey, Jack Sawyer, Nick Andros, and whoever else I thought might be useful. I'm too lazy to ever do it, probably, but if I had that Tommy Knocker's top writer, Bobby Anderson's, it'd be working overtime. Anyways, despite the disappointment, I did end up enjoying the final three or four books of the series, but I'm still disappointed with them as well. Both ideas exist in my mind at once, 
like a much less severe version of Jake being alive but remembering dying. So this, um, what Brian is uh, talking about right now is a reference to just some thoughts I've I've had as I've gone along the podcasts. And when I had first read The Dark Tower, I was disappointed that in the conclusion of the series, it didn't end with what I call an Avengers-style mashup of Stephen King's characters. I mean, characters do cross over, um, but for whatever reason, I expected some grand statement uh, by having all of his characters team up, which is something that I feel now that I've reread the, the Dark Tower again, without that expectation, I that is that is not necessarily something that Stephen King had built into his work. That is an expectation that I had built for myself. So it was unfair for me to judge Stephen King for what he did not give me um, because he had never intended, with the exception of Jack Sawyer, he had never intended to to give that to us. So upon reread, that disappointment was not there because the expectation was not there. And I loved what he did with what he had, had given us. Number five, here's the thing about the Dark Half movie that will probably cause you to nod appreciatively. I'm only so-so on the movie and, like you, find to be sort of strangely uninvolving, but I think a lot of it works really well. One element I love is how Romero used the Elvis song, Are You Loathsome Tonight, to a very creepy effect. It works in of itself, but a few years ago, not long before I reviewed the movie for my blog, I'd watched the John Carpenter movie Elvis, which starred Kurt Russell as the king. In watching it, I learned that Elvis himself had a brother, uh, Jesse Garen Presley. Jesse died during birth, about a half an hour before Elvis's birth, and biographers content that Elvis was, metaphorically, haunted by Jesse his entire life. Supposedly, he would sometimes hold conversations with his departed sibling, and there was a terrific scene in Carpenter's movie in which Elvis sits talking to himself, a shadow cast on the wall, serving as a silent reminder of what's going on. For me, that makes the Elvis scenes in the dark half even creepier than they already were. I had no idea that that was the case, and I think that that is an awesome inclusion, so thanks for sharing, Brian. Number six, I could not agree with you more that Matthew McConaughey would make a terrific terrific Randall flag. I always wanted Tom Cruise to play the part, though. He's charming, he's crazy, he's powerful, and you rarely see him play the villain. Sadly, I'm not optimistic about anyone ever actually getting the chance to do it. It seems like the four-movie plan fell apart and is now a Television Plus movie idea. Who knows if that'll go anywhere. And, Brian, yeah, because we haven't heard much, um, and I don't think that McConaughey has officially signed on the dotted line. I don't think this is going to happen. I, I think that the the stand project is is going to fall apart and go the way of of um, of uh, what the Dark Tower has done before in the past, where everyone gets really excited that it's going to be made into a movie, and then it just kind of stalls and quietly dies. So I. I just, I just don't, I don't see it happening. Uh, number seven, I also agree with you totally about the ickiness of the rape scene in the library policeman. Uh, King's forays into sex don't typically bother me. For example, I see what he was going for with the big scene in It, but this one did. I think his intent was fine. I don't think he meant anything salacious by it, but instead meant to horrify and disturb and to cause the reader to sympathize with the main character. But I think it's too serious a subject to toss into a story in which the villain is defeated by Twizzlers, or whatever. Sidebar, no mention of the catchphrase, that's chow, that's chow, that's chowdy chow, not a... Uh, not a king high point, nor is Pop's refrain of what I meant to say is from the sun dog. Number eight, whatever happened to the bonus episode of the cast that was going to examine the tower connections in Needful Things? I was looking forward to that one, but I didn't see any signs of its existence. So yeah, I, uh, I so in the episode of Needful Things, I said that there was going to be a bonus episode and I recorded one. It was like six minutes long. I was exhausted as I was recording it. Um, I, I listened to it and it was an abysmal listen. And basically all I talked about, there was really not much to talk about because there really aren't any connections. It was just my, my wish of, um, I kind of uh, just talked about how I would like to see an interaction between Leland Gaunt and Randall Flagg. And I might have touched, I don't remember, I might have touched upon this in my bonus review of, or not my bonus review, but my my final review of, of The Dark Tower in which King had hinted at the past of Randall Flagg, how he was a, a boy named Walter Paddock and he set out on the road and, um, you know, you're led to believe that he had a number of adventures on his, on his quest to find dark magic. And I just, I wonder who he encountered 
along the way? And what if he, he had met a traveling peddler, right? So I, I just was just kind of fanficking, fanfictioning a little bit, and it was not worth your time to listen. Um, so that, that's, why, that's why it doesn't exist. Number nine, the extended cut of the movie Needful Things is not exactly easy to find. It's never been issued on video, and the last time I checked was nowhere on streaming or YouTube. Don't, okay, um, I give a big thumbs up to your review of the Night Flyer movie. I love that film. It's got its issues, but of the B-movie King adaptations, I'd say it might have to be the best of the bunch. I don't know if you know this, but King enjoyed the movie so much that he and the director, Mark Pavia, collaborated on the screenplay to a sequel which never got produced, which sucks. What I'd give to read that. Pavia hasn't made a movie since, which seems like a massive shame to me. Based on the Night Flyer, he seems to be a guy who gets it. A few years back, it was announced that he was going to be directing The Reaper's Image, an anthology film of King's stories that would include the title story N, and dang, I can't remember the final one, what was going to be. Sadly, the project never got funding, so obviously it was never made. And that really is too bad, because if you haven't listened to my review of The Night Flyer, The Night Flyer really is a fun story. And I think that it's well done. It's very, uh, it's very moody. It's got a good uh, tone to it. Uh, great, great set dressing. Miguel Ferrar just knocks it out of the ballpark. It really, really is too bad. Um, and I would, I would love to see him do more. And if he were to do N, that would be incredible. I am about to start reading. I'm currently rereading Under the Dome. I'm going to, which I, I think that in the chronological order of publication, um, I'm kind of going a little bit off sequence. I think that I should be reading just after sunset uh but i'm gonna read under the dome and then do just after sunset and then probably move on to 11 63 but whatever that's just for my reading experience not how it's going to be released uh for the podcast but i'm really looking forward to getting back to just under just after sunset because it does include the short story n which is awesome it's one of my favorite stephen king short stories it's so creepy and i would love to see that turned into a a movie and and by the way was uh, it was published right around the time that stephen king created his, his collaboration and partnership with marvel comics so marvel comics was able to release a a motion comic um, in installments, adapting N before N came out, and it's super creepy. It's so well done. And it's just a fun visual experience. Um, and that is Bryant. So, Bryant, thank you so much for, for writing in. And if you guys have not done so, feel free to write in yourself. That's StephenKingCast at Yahoo.com. As you know, I love I love getting listener email. And I'm sorry, guys, if you're listening to this, um, so many of you have written, and I haven't had a chance to actually write back to you um but i will i promise if you have written into me i will write back to you i just life right now is pretty busy and um i just want to make sure that i get the podcast out there um so i there there is a chance that i might read your email on air before i actually get back to you but please do not let this um be a deterrent from writing in because i do i do want to interact with all of you and if you have not done so already also uh, make sure that you subscribe to itunes and write a review on itunes i just uh received uh, a review just a little while ago and i really really appreciate it and the more itunes reviews i get just the more it puts the the stephen king cast out there so that i would i would greatly appreciate it Okay, guys, back to sell. As you know, I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary so I have a basis upon which I can build my analysis. Clayton Riddle, a struggling artist from Maine, has just landed a graphic novel deal in Boston when the Pulse, a signal sent over the global cell phone network, suddenly turns every cell phone user into mindless zombie-like killer. Clay is standing in Boston Common when the pulse hits, causing chaos to erupt all around him. Civilization crumbles as the phoners attack each other and any unaltered people in view. Amidst the chaos, Clay is thrown together with a middle-aged Tom McCourt and teenager Alice Maxwell. The trio escapes to Tom's suburban home as Boston burns. The next day, they learn the phoners have begun foraging for food and banding together in flocks. Clay is still determined to return to Maine and reunite with his young son, Johnny. Having no better alternatives, Tom and Alice come with him. They trek north by night across a devastated New England, having fleeting encounters with other survivors and catching disturbing hints about the activities of the phoners who still attack non-phoners on site. 
Crossing into New Hampshire, they arrive at the Gayton Academy, a prep school with one remaining teacher, Charles Ardai, and one surviving pupil, Jordan. The pair show the newcomers where the local phoners flock go where the local phoner flock goes at night. They pack themselves into the academy's soccer field and switch off until morning. It's clear that the phoners have become a hive mind and are developing psychic abilities. The five survivors decide they must destroy the flock, and using two propane tankers, they succeed in doing so. Clay tries to get everyone to flee the scene, but the others refuse to abandon the elderly Ardai. That night, all of the survivors share the same horrific dream. Each dreamer sees himself in a stadium, surrounded by phoners, as a disheveled man wearing a Harvard University hooded sweatshirt approaches, bringing their death. Waking, the heroes share their frightening dream experiences and dub him the Raggedy Man. A new flock surrounds their residence, and the normies face the flock's metaphorical spokesman, the man in the Harvard hoodie. The flock kills each other, kills other normals in reprisal, and orders the protagonists to head north to a spot in Maine called Cashwalk. To stop their main objection, the flock psychically compels Ardai to commit suicide. Clay and the others bury him and travel north, as Clay is still determined to go home. En route, they learn that, as flock killers, they have been psychically marked as untouchables, to be shunned by other normals. Normies. Sorry. And so I just always think of, was it, is it Family Guy? Um, Peter at one point, uh, I don't even know what's going on. I, I think that he gets plastic surgery or something, and he, he thinks that he's beautiful, and he calls all non-beautiful people normies. Following a petty squabble on the road, Alice is killed by a loudish pair of normies. The group buries her and arrives in Clay's hometown of Kent Pond, where they discover notes from Johnny, which tell them Clay's estranged wife Sharon was turned into a phoner, but their son survived for several days before he and the other normies were prompted by the phoners to head to the supposedly cell phone, cell phone free cashwalk. Clay has another nightmare, which reveals that once there, the normie refugees were all exposed to the pulse. He remains intent on finding his son. But after meeting another group of flock killers, Tom and Jordan decide to avoid the ceremonial execution the phoners have planned. Before separating, the group discovers that Alice's murderers were psychically compelled into a gruesome suicide act for touching an untouchable. Clay sets off alone, but the others soon reappear driving a small school bus. The phoners have used their ever-increasing psychic powers to force them to rejoin him. One of the flock killers, a construction worker, Ray, surreptitiously gives Clay a cell phone and a phone number, telling him to use them when the time is right. Ray then commits suicide. The group arrives at Cashwalk, the site of a half-assembled county fair where increasing numbers of phoners are beginning to behave erratically and break out of the flock. Jordan theorizes that a computer program caused the pulse, and while it's still broadcasting into the battery-powered cell phone network, it has become corrupted with a computer worm that has infected the newer phoners with a mutated pulse. Nevertheless, the entire army of phoners is still waiting for them, and Clay notices Sharon is among them. The phoners lock their group into the fair's exhibition hall for the night. Tomorrow is the ceremonial execution to be psychically broadcast to all phoners and remaining normals in the world. As Clay awaits their morning execution, he sees Ray's unspoken plan. Ray has filled the rear of the bus with explosives, wired a cell phone triggered detonator to them, and killed himself to prevent the phoners from telepathically discovering the explosives. The group breaks the window for Jordan to squeeze through, and he drives the vehicle into the midst of the inert phoners. Thanks to a jury-rigged cell phone patch set up by the pre-pulse fair workers, Clay is able to detonate the bomb and wipe out the Raggedy Man's flock, and based on the remains of the Harvard hoodie in the aftermath, the Raggedy Man himself. The majority of the group heads into Canada to let the approaching winter wipe out the region's unprotected and leaderless phoners. Clay heads south, seeking his son. He finds Johnny who received a corrupted pulse. He wandered away from Cashwalk and seems to almost recognize his father. However, Johnny is an erratic shadow of his former self, and so, following another theory of Jordan's, Clay decides to give Johnny another blast from the pulse, hoping the increasingly corrupted signal will cancel itself out and reset his son's brain. The book ends with Clay's dialing and placing the cell phone to Johnny's ear. Analysis. So, King begins his other post-apocalyptic survival tale with an ominous beginning. Civilization slipped into its second dark age on an unsurprising tract of blood. 
but with a speed that could not have been foreseen by even the most pessimistic futurist. It was as if it had been waiting to go. On October 1st, God was in his heaven, the stock market stood at 10,140, and most of the planes were on time, except for those landing and taking off in Chicago, and that was to be expected. Two weeks later, the skies belonged to the birds again, and the stock market was a memory. By Halloween, every major city from New York to Moscow stank to the empty heavens, and the world as it had been was a memory. Chapter 1, or Book 1, there, there's no um, really delineation, but it's just entitled The Pulse. King gives us a global and the personal with the same page, opening with a summative description of the novel's events with the introduction to our main character, Clay Riddle. The event that had come to be known as The Pulse began at 3.03 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the afternoon of October 1st. The term was a misnomer, of course, but within 10 hours of the event, most of the scientists capable of pointing us out were either dead or insane. The name hardly mattered in any case. What mattered was the effect. So that is the, the, the large look at what's about to occur. And then everything else um, that that we get out of the first couple pages is the introduction to to clay so we get the global right something is about to happen something very bad the pulse it's going to wipe everything out and the personal we get to to know our our point of view throughout this story clay now <coughs> excuse me um in king's more famous apocalyptic novel the stand he dedicated hundreds of pages to the collapse of civilization here he just does it in six pages he spends the minimal amount of time establishing Clay, his situation, his job, his conflict, as well as the setting of Boston, so that when the pulse goes through, we have a clear idea of what to visualize. Um, and while speaking of Boston, I, I I love the fact that it takes place because King, when he when he writes a um, a city setting, you know, he he's written uh, of New York a lot of the time, as seen with the, the Dark Tower books, but. Um, I just went to Boston last week to to see the the band The Darkness, uh, and if you have never seen The Darkness live, I strongly strongly recommend seeing The Darkness because they are awesome. Uh, but driving through Boston every single time I go into that city, I just get frustrated because if you take one wrong turn, uh, it automatically adds anywhere from between 15 to 30 minutes. So for about a half an hour, based on all of the, the wrong turns I took, because there are parallel roads that, that branch off um, on similar paths, but go to different locations, and the GPS always gets confused. So for at least a half an hour, I was perpetually 13 minutes away from the, 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 the destination, which was right off of the highway. So, and I knew that was going to happen. That's why we left earlier, but Boston is, is fresh in my mind. Anyway, uh, the pulse taking place through the limited perspective of clay causes an immediate and disorienting effect. The first thing that we notice is of the man in the business suit eating a dog's ear, followed by a woman in a power suit going rabid herself. Now, her utterance of the um, noise, rast, it's a great detail, but I think that it's borrowed from either 28 Days Later or Zack Snyder's remake of Dawn of the Dead. Now, I, I distinctly remember hearing this noise come from one of those zombie movies, and it, like I said before, it would make sense if King took it, as this was during a period in which cinema introduced the world to the concept of fast zombies, especially with 28 Days Later, um, which is very similar to Cell, and the fact that they aren't zombies at all um, in the more traditional sense, not undead, but instead infected rage monsters, much like the victims of the Pulse. Now, the scene of this initial pulse is done so well. Chaos spreads instantaneously, and all the while I couldn't help but picture it as one long extended shot if it were a film, which it's going to be. So I hope that the movie tries to capture the chaos and danger in one take, because if they manage to pull it off, it'll be an all-time King classic moment in cinema. The initial chaos never shows signs of slowing its momentum. It continues to spread more, I'm sorry, as it continues to spread, more and more carnage tears apart Boston. Now, keep in mind, guys, Cell was released only five years after 9-11. 
We're getting further and further removed from the 9-11 attacks, and sometimes it's easy to forget the sensibilities that gripped the world and our country in the years immediately following the tragedy. Cell's success comes from the commentary on the dependency of cell phones, um, but also its success comes from its proximity to September 11, 2001. The opening to the novel invokes the fear and confusion of 9-11 as America is once again going to serve as the host for a terrorist attack. New York is off limits. It's too soon to even fictionalize an attack on New York, but Boston is up for grabs. And while Boston might not have the same international importance of New York, in terms of its historical importance to the U.S., its status is incomparable. So much of fiction following 9-11 spoke of themes of vulnerability, uh, a loss of control, of a faceless and overwhelming danger, and the fear of the other. Now, Cell conveys these sensations in the first 20 pages. After the immediate attack, the adrenaline of surreal quality of the moment is replaced by a larger fear, not of what just happened, but of what will happen next. And what happens next is 40 pages in a hotel. We're introduced to a couple new characters, as you'd expect. A zombie story is like a snowball, picking up as it goes along. But ultimately, especially after this harrowing uh, and, and nail-biting in, uh, introduction, the fact that nothing happens for the next 40 pages really slows this book down in the worst possible way. Section 2, Malden. Clay, Tom, and Alice head towards Malden, and we get a great image of them leaving a burning Boston under a full moon. This is followed by another great image, that of the streets full of discarded cell phones. Back at Tom's place, King allows his characters to converse and hype hypothesize on a world around them, expressing fear of roaming gangs and the fact that Massachusetts' tough gun control laws might have saved more lives, pointing to two drunk men who had been fighting over a keg. If one of them had been carrying, it would have ended badly. The bad news is this also makes the guns harder to find in a post-apocalyptic world. Furthermore, the cell phone crazies function as the loaded weapon here, as Tom and Clay theorize where they might have gone and how a terrorist organization caused them to be. On page 110, um, King writes, In a way, this is no different from the bioterrorism the government was so afraid of after 9-11, he said. By using cell phones, which have become the dominant form of communication in our daily lives, you simultaneously turn the populace into your own conscript army, an army that's literally afraid of nothing because it's insane, and you break down the infrastructure. Where's the National Guard tonight? Iraq? Clay ventured. Louisiana? It wasn't much of a joke, and Tom didn't smile. It's nowhere. How to use a homeland force now that... That now depends almost entirely on cellular network to even mobilize. As for airplanes, the last one I've seen flying was the little one that crashed on the corner of Charles and Beacon. He paused and went on, looking straight across the table into Clay's eyes. All this they did, whoever they is. They looked at us from wherever it is they live and worshipped their gods, and what did they see? Clay shook his head, fascinated by Tom's eyes shining behind his spectacles. They were almost the eyes of a visionary. They saw we had built the Tower of Babel all over again, and on nothing but electronic cobwebs. And in a space of seconds, they brushed those cobwebs aside, and our tower fell. All this they did, and we three are like bugs that happened by dumb, dim luck alone to have avoided the fall of a giant's foot. All this they did, and do you think they could not have encoded a signal telling the affected ones to simply fall asleep and stop breathing five hours later? What's the trick compared to the first one? Not much, I'd say. Clay said, I'd say it's time we got some sleep. The next day, when they encounter a zombie in Tom's backyard, they realize that they have a rudimentary understanding of how to use tools. They might be zombie-like, but they can think which is setting this apart from the other zombie movies that you might have seen. There's an aspect to the post-apocalyptic stories that you, ne that you never see that often, and that's the abandonment of, your an of an animal. In The Stand, King gave us the perspective of the dog Kojak, 
And in I Am Legend, the Will Smith starring movie by Francis Lawrence, there's a wonderful relationship with a dog. But rarely do we have to watch our characters say goodbye to their pets. Though, spoiler alert for uh, I Am Legend, if you want a good cry, watch Will Smith realize that he can't save his dog. Here, Tom has to say goodbye to his cat, Raph. Or Rafe? It's pretty upsetting. And maybe because when I first read this, I believe... I think it was around the time. Um, but anyway, my, my cat had just died. Um, so it was extra potent for me. That cat, by the way, um, was the one against which all others would be judged and found wanting. And I'll never own another cat. Archie, you were the best, and you know it. I miss you, buddy. Anyway, uh, the gang find uh, all the alternatives artillery they need, and they're off. Gate and Academy. From the safety of a barn, the three watch as a flock of the afflicted walk past, and it's clear that when the zombies are together, they're smarter. Now, King is going to go to some crazy places with his exploration of the zombie genre, um, but this is one that is both fresh and works well. The idea that the zombies are collectively intelligent due to telepathic groupthink is a novel and entertaining concept. King also explores what rumors and urban myths will look like in the post-apocalypse. Just days after the Pulse is sent out, all sorts of news starts to spread throughout the survivors, including the idea that New Hampshire has set up a border and is shooting people who try to cross it, and Salem is burning the bodies of the dead. Without phones, news definitely can't travel this fast, but a foul rumor can, like weed through a garden. Despite this rumor, they press on and make it to New Hampshire without issue. While they're on their way, they encounter a man pushing a boy in a shopping carriage. If this strikes you as familiar, it should. It's the basic premise of Cormac McCarthy's The Road that came out eight months after Cell. Now, I am not saying that McCarthy ripped off Stephen King. Surely he was writing this the same time that Stephen King was writing Cell, but it is such a vivid image that is so ingrained in the story of The Road that it's crazy to think that it was simply a throwaway piece of imagery in a Stephen King story and the primary piece of iconography in Cormac McCarthy's post-apocalypse. The trio soon meet a student and the head dean of a nearby academy where they discover the sleeping bodies of the phone crazies stacked up in the soccer field. These two, the head and Jordan, are a great addition to the novel, and with them, King is able to make sure that the mood is light, as the head, despite the fact that he's living in the apocalypse, never misses a moment to pepper Jordan with quizzes, correcting him on his grammar and testing his translating ability. The head and Jordan show the crazies in the field, which is a disturbing sight. The zombies' eyes are open, but their minds are completely vacant. They're all attuned to each other, and from their mouths project the music they are listening to. Here, King basically recycles a line from the character of Ali in, from his novella The Mist, first mass published in Skeleton Crew. And I love how this thesis is explored more thoroughly here in Cell. King has written about the apocalypse before, most famously in The Stand, but the purpose of that novel was to explore the decisions of humanity when faced with a spiritual crossroads. Here, we have a sci-fi concept laced with a philosophical dilemma. The head explains, At the bottom you see, we are not homo sapiens at all. Our core is madness. The prime directive is murder. What Darwin was too polite to say, my friends, is that we came to rule the earth not because we are the smartest, or even the meanest, but because we have always been the craziest, most murderous motherfuckers in the jungle. And that is what the Pulse exposed five days ago. They prepare to exterminate this particular flock of crazies when they spot an explosion in the distance, to which their flock responds with a deep moaning, confirming that they are all connected. Later, when awake, the zombies are seen evolving to having the ability to use shopping carts and wheelbarrows to transport their dead out of the way. The crew manages to take care of their flock, which unsettles them deeply. It's a good moment, as they cause the death of nearly a thousand people. Unlike zombies from the movies, these zombies are still alive. They are wiped out all, they're, they're wiped out of all humanity, but they're still living. I'm not saying that their decision to wipe out this nest was wrong, but because they're still alive, it provides a different texture. And in the aftermath, they discuss the disturbing quality that they've seen within a couple of the crazies, which, has peer, which appears as though the zombies now have telekinetic ability. 
things continued to get progressively weird as the characters have a shared dream of King's newest villain, the Raggedy Man, as we see on page 252. He had been a black man with a noble head and an ascetic's face above a lanky, almost scrawny body. The hair was a tight cap of dark ringlets cut open on one side by an ugly triangular gouge. The shoulders were slight, the hips nearly non-existent. Below the cap of curls, Clay quick sketched the broad and handsome forehead, a scholar's forehead. Then he marred it with another slash and shaded it in the hanging flap of skin that obscured one eyebrow. The man's left cheek had been torn open, possibly by a bite, and the lower lip was also torn on that side, making it droop in a tired sneer. The eyes were a problem. Kay couldn't, Clay couldn't quite get them right. In the dream, they had been both full of awareness, yet somehow dead. After two tries, he left them and dropped to the pullover before he lost that, the kind that the kids called a hoodie. Red, he printed with an arrow, with white block letters across the front. It had been too big for the skinny body, and a flap of material lay over the top half of the letters, but Clay was pretty sure it said Harvard. He was starting to print that when the weeping started soft and muffled from somewhere below him. The legend of the Raggedy Man doesn't have much time to grow before King decides to introduce him in person. As soon as the characters awaken, they realize that their safe house has been surrounded by the crazies who are calmly waiting for them outside. In a very unsettling scene, we see that the rules have completely changed, and if the novel had begun with raving lunatics out of 28 days later, they've now evolved into the aliens from Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And it's here where the Raggedy Man appears to them. And this is a weird character, guys. So far, King has given us your typical zombie setup, then recently began making major tweaks. Okay, they're not mindless. Okay, they flock together. Okay, they seem to have a hive mind. Okay, they appear to have telekinesis. And with the Raggedy Man, they now have a leader. A zombie leader, which is what you don't, you don't see much of that. And to top it off, he has personality. He mocks Clay. And though his face is devoid of any emotion, which is creepy when you think about the um, pantomime motions he's making, you get the sense that he's taking pleasure from it. The Raggedy Man, I'm sorry, uh, next section is called Fading Roses, This Garden's Over. The Raggedy Man uh, is forcing them to an unincorporated tract of land. By this point, this novel is no longer resembling your typical zombie story, so all bets are off. On their way to TR-90, uh, they try interacting with another group of non-crazies only to learn that the zombies are beaming information into everybody's brain to accuse our crew and make them outcasts. Again, we've closed the book on their traditional zombie take and we've picked up a brand new one. Their trek to TR-90 reinforced their position as outcasts, with a deadly encounter with a couple of zombie sympathizers who ultimately are responsible for Alice's gruesome death by a cinder block. Next section, Kent Pond. Clay returns home and discovers that his son has survived the initial pulse. A note left behind reveals that his son is traveling to Cashwack like everyone else, so this novel is heading in only one direction at this point. On their way, they discover they encounter a group of outcasts just like them, so at least they're not alone anymore. During the conversation, we get a theory of the reality of the Raggedy Man. What I show you will be for our purposes rather than theirs, Dan said. And by the way, talking about the president of Harvard, or the Raggedy Man if you prefer, showing up in person is probably a mistake, maybe a bad one. He's really no more than a pseudopod to the group mind, the overflock. Puts, one, puts out front to do business with ordinary normies and special insane normies like us. I theorize that there are overflocks all over the world now, and each may have put forward one such pseudopod, maybe even more than one. But don't make the mistake of thinking that when you're talking to the raggedy man, you're talking to an actual man. You're talking to the flock. At this point, Clay has no other choice but to continue onward to certain death. He has to head to Cashwalk because his son is there. However, the others are bound by no such drive, so it's here where our group breaks apart. Next section, phone bingo. Not much happens here other than dreams, and Clay is reunited with his crew, which makes him leaving the crew pointless. Next section, worm. Jordan's theory is that there was a worm in the original Pulse that's corrupting the programming. 
One of the group's members, Ray, hands Clay a cell phone with a 10-digit number to dial. What it's for is completely unknown at this time, but he is urged, he's urging Clay to use it when the time comes. Next section, Cashwhack. They arrive in Cashwhack, where the end game begins. They have a conversation which they believe that Ray, before he shot himself, rigged the bus with explosives that'll explode when Clay dials the 10-digit number on the cell phone he gave them. After a tense moment in which they think they've lost the number, they find it again and manage to detonate the bus. Save to system. The explosion completely obliterates the hive mind of the crazies, and in the aftermath, Clay manages to rediscover his son, who is now a wandering zombie. This results in one of King's more ambiguous but memorable endings, when Clay realizes uh, that he has to do something, anything, to save his son's life, even if it means pressing a cell phone to his son's ear in the hope that a second pulse will restore the boy's previous operating system. So guys, that is Cell. And what I'm going to do now, I'm going to read the Stephen Kingisms. And for those of you uh, who don't know what the Stephen Kingisms are, they are tricks and treats and tropes. Um, Stephen King patterns that we find in, in each of his works. So the first of which is the end of the world. This is something that we have seen before in the pages of The, the Stand and The Mist, and then now in Cell. Number two, the artist striking it big just before the world ends. Clay Riddle hits the jackpot and sells his graphic novel just before the pulse, just as Larry Underwood had begun his path to music infamy just before the arrival of Campton Trips. Number three is the creative. Um, usually it's writers, um, as seen with Ben Mears and Jack Torrance and Bill Denbro and Mike Noonan and uh, Thad Beaumont and uh, Jim Gardner and Bobby Anderson um, and Mort Rainey and others. Uh, usually it's writers, um, but we've also seen um, musicians with uh, Jamie from Revival, Larry Underwood from The Stand. Um, but lately he's been writing about painters and, and people with artistic talent, um, as seen with um, Patrick Danville uh, from The Dark Tower. And we will soon check in with Edgar Fremantle from Dumaki. So Stephen King right now is kind of... He's using the, the, the artist as his as his entryway into um, creativity and imagination and just being able to create a lot of imagery through the perspective of his his characters who happen to be artists and so he he's always able to create a very visual uh section and image for for our uh for the readers Number four, the religious zealot. Clay and Tom and Alice are accosted by the religious zealot. Shades of Margaret White, Sylvia Pitson, and Mrs. Carmody. Number five, dreaming of the villain in a post-apocalyptic story. So they're having dreams of the raggedy man. It's not the first time that our survivors of, a po of apocalypse um, begin dreaming of the villain. Most famously, uh, we have seen the dreams of all of the, the survivors dreaming of Randall Flagg in The Stand. Number six, walking into an impossible conclusion. Heading to uh, Cashwhack is similar to heading to Las Vegas from the stand. And number seven is the amusement park. An amusement park features heavily in the final pages of the novel, which we've seen in The Dead Zone, Low Men in Yellow Coats, and will again in Joyland and Revival. Easter eggs. Um, so here we go. I This is not necessarily an Easter egg, but I just I kind of want to throw it out there. Language of the Dead. Now, though certain phrases, the, the, the certain phrases from uh, Language of the Dead, like mihemento, uh, the style of the language of the infected here is very similar to the language of the dead, um, which, is, which is really, really fun. I'm going to get into that a little bit uh, later on. So Easter eggs, uh, TR90. This is the same town from Bag of Bones, and it's here where the, the raggedy men are driving the characters um, to the unincorporated township. Uh, number three, Micmac. Uh, the the Micmacs are mentioned, and the Micmac burial ground is the burial ground beyond the pet cemetery. And number four, 
Charlie the Choo Choo. At the amusement park in the conclusion of the novel, they discover a children's ride called Charlie the Choo Choo, which is um, found in the pages of The Wasteland and Wizard in Glass and is sort of the avatar for the much more real and dangerous train, Blaine, who is a pain. And that is the truth. Um, okay, so final thoughts. So what's enjoyable about this book is that there's no real answer. I mean, we never find out who's responsible, whether it was a terrorist group or not. If it was a terrorist group, did they plan for the mutation uh, as well or just the mind wipe? And if it was just the mind wipe, how do we explain the mutation that followed? Did some evil opportunistic entity from the Todash space come crawling out of the darkness into all the open minds that had been left available in the wake of the pulse? I've already mentioned the similarities to the language of the dead. The possession seems like a full-scale tack invasion. It wouldn't be hard to imagine something like tack from desperation and the regulators taking advantage of the opportunities presented here. So I just have a hard time believing that a terrorist group said, uh, okay, we're going to send out a pulse where ultimately all of the uh, pulse victims are going to have telepathic and telekinetic powers. We'll start sharing a hive mind. And, you know, like, I just don't see that. So where does this mutation come from? I'm going to just, I'm personally, there, and there, I, this, there's really no textual evidence for me to back it up, but just my own wishful thinking that, yes, one of Stephen King's um, oogie boogies came crawling out and took advantage, um, which is fun. You know, so all of a sudden, it, it just... There could be another story within this this world of Cell where a band of heroes come up and, you know, pushed by the power of the white, um, they learn the truth of what's going on and they, they right the wrongs and they set everything straight and they, they fight evil. But that is not this story. This is a story of survival. This is a... A warning for all of us who stare down at our screens all the time or at the time had our... our, our um, cell phones pressed to our ears all the, the time and um like i said it's just a, a fun entry in in the world of zombies for for stephen king to to, to touch upon because he hasn't really done it before uh, he did write a, a zombie story i believe in nightmares and dreamscapes i can't remember the the title of it but that that does have a zombie there and you know i mean he has done you know Pet Cemetery, in essence, you, you have zombies, um, so the, the, the undead. But your your mass group of zombies, the end of the world by zombie apocalypse, he's never done before, and this is definitely an interesting take. So, you know, I, mean, I mentioned the early 2000s, um, and this was 2006. So, I mean, this was, a, this was the beginning of it, guys. I mean, right now I'm recording this on a Sunday. I'll be watching The, the Walking Dead later tonight, and I have a love-hate relationship with that show. Um... Because I, I feel as though it, it can be very heavy-handed at times. and um, But at the end of the day, I still watch it every week when it's out. I talk about it the next day at work. I, um, I get involved. I get caught up in it. So it's doing its job. And any you know, criticism I have is because I see that there's a lot of talent on display. And I just always kind of want to bring it to that, that next level. And I never feel as though it, it, it does. It comes close a lot of the time. And sometimes what they're able to do on that show is 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 so intense you really have to applaud them for being able to do it and shout out to greg nicotero for his work on on the walking dead i mean his designs and his his effects are the fact that we get that on a weekly basis is insane so i don't know why i just this became a review of the walking dead but um i just feel like it's it's necessary because i mean we are living in a in a zombie world which is just crazy to me uh you know because when this came out when cell came out it it was growing but now it is just pop culture commonplace it is the accepted it's the accepted thing zombies and bacon are our two uh you know go-to's in our world everybody loves zombies everybody loves bacon and it's just accepted and once upon a time it wasn't necessarily that way but because of the success of um you know, I would say I really do believe that 28 Days Later really helped bring back zombies in in a, in a much new way. And like I said, it it uh, it introduced the idea of fast zombies, which whoa boy at the time, guys, that was that was a controversial topic. You can't have your zombies running fast. 
And then Zack Snyder said, yeah, we can, and I'm going to do it in my remake of, of Dawn of the Dead. And he had his zombies running fast, and man, people were all up in arms. But those two, those two movies are great. I love, love Zack Snyder's The Dawn of the Dead. I think that it is great. Sarah Pauly is great. And oh my God, what is his name? What is his name? He was in American, um, American Gothic in the 90s. Is it Jake something? I apologize, because that guy is a fantastic actor who brings so much in, in his relationship and the way he's able to, uh, just he and the way he and Sarah Polly bounce off each other is just, they've got a lot of chemistry with, um, and it's very believable because it's never a love story, but there is a connection. It's, just, it's a good movie. I'll stand by it. And Zack Snyder has taken a lot of heat, a lot of heat, you know, and I criticize the guy because um, I can't stand the Man of Steel. Um, but I really, I, I think that there was something special with, uh, the Dawn of the Dead remake. And maybe that's because James Gunn had a lot to do with it. James Gunn, of course, wrote the screenplay and James Gunn also, uh, is the, is the guy that, that brought us Slither and eventually Guardians of the Galaxy. So there's, that's, that was a great, great combination of a great story that was able to produce very strong, well-rounded characters that were believable, that had arcs. Um, like the character of, of CJ, I believe, who, who started out kind of as the villain, but wound up becoming a reluctant hero and part of the group. Um, so it had arcs, it had warmth, it had humor, uh, which is not something that you find all the time in, in zombie stories, especially The Walking Dead, which is one of my major issues with The Walking Dead. And one of the reasons why I loved this season's premiere as much as I did, because not only was it intense and not only was it... Uh, just shot beautifully with the black and white scenes just done so well but it also had humor so whether it was eugene talking about his his hair game or morgan calling out michonne about the the peanut butter protein bar which she lied about by the way you know i mean stuff like that i think that we need to do more of in the walking dead and while i'm on it about the walking dead i love the fact that this season's taking place over like one day that's a really bold and stylistic move that i really really have to applaud so i mean that's it's really breaking up what could be very uh, a very monotonous show. But guys, I'm talking around something that I really want to get to, and I probably should... You know what? At some point, I will dedicate an entire podcast to it. But when I think about zombie movies, um, when I think about the early 2000s, there's one more than others that comes to mind, and that is uh, Edgar Wright's The Shaun of the Dead, which to me is not... <sighs> It's just it's it's hands down my favorite zombie movie period, um, and it's it's one of my top five movies period. And like I'll get into in an eventual review, if you have not seen the Sh- Shaun of the Dead, you have to see Shaun of the Dead because this movie it, it gets it gets unfairly labeled as a parody of a zombie movie. It's not. It is a zombie movie. It just happens to be a comedy as well at times. But this movie is able to make you uh, laugh one minute. And then, no joke, start crying the next because um, Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg and Nick Frost have all made you be able to really understand and care for and relate to these characters. So when tragedy happens, and it is a zombie movie, so tragedy does happen, this isn't this isn't zombie fodder. You actually really care about these characters, and I'm just I am just so impressed with the way that the creative team behind that movie are able to to uh to just run you through this gamut of emotions so maybe one time i'll do uh a a review of the the cornetto trilogy i think that would be fun but uh but anyway guys this is my review of cell which is fun cell is you know i mean it's not even an hour and i feel bad because you you know i i like to have my my reviews um to be meaningful and and lengthy and, and worth your time but i just find that there really isn't much else to talk about um with cell i think that i've said that everything that I, I i have to say it wouldn't be one of the the go-to ones i'd recommend for stephen king but i think that there is something to it um if you like cell phones and you like zombies, then go ahead and and read cell. That that'll be my that'll be my. Uh, if you ever want to pull a quote and put it on the the, uh, the 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 cover, then then there you go. You have my permission. If you like cell phones and you like zombies, then cell is for you. All right, guys. With that said, that's all I got for this week. Um, make sure that you stick around next week as I review. Um, 
What am I reviewing? Oh, right. The very, very personal uh, what-if story. Um, a book about the, the writing process and imagination, but more importantly, a story about love and marriage. And that, of course, is Lisey's story. So, um, if you have not done so already, like I've asked before, um, head on over to iTunes and uh, write a review. Uh, and, uh, you know, subscribe there or just write to me your thoughts at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And may you have long days and pleasant nights. And I will see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King. Do what you want.